Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November edition of our Natural Wine Club. My name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports here in Calgary, Alberta. Uh, and today I'm going to walk you through the wines that we have in our uh, little selection here. Um, first, we're going to do something totally different, though. Uh, we've had a request from one of our listeners to go through uh, sort of our thought process when it comes to wine pairings. Uh, wine pairings, it's, uh, it's controversial. Uh, <laughs> everybody seems to have their own ideology about how to go uh, about trying to find the best wine to go with a certain dish, um, or I guess even vice versa. But we sort of have our, our own uh, methodology, and today we're going to sort of share that with you. Um, obviously, in our write-ups every month, we include wine pairings. And uh, so we want to sort of shed some light on how we go about actually coming up with those pairings uh, and why we think they work. So there are a handful of things you need to think about when you're doing a pairing, and they're what we call structural components. Um, so they're the actual uh, sort of measurable parts in the actual wine. So this is things like alcohol, uh, acidity, tannin, body, um, these are all things that are a little less uh, subjective. There's things that we can measure. You know, we know that this wine is 12% alcohol, for instance, versus 10% alcohol versus 15% alcohol. Uh, we know that the acidity of a certain wine will be, uh, you know, X number of grams per liter of uh, tartratable uh, acidity. Um, or looking at the pH. So we know that it is a certain amount of acidic. Um, the body of a wine is directly related to uh, a handful of factors um, including how much sugar is in the wine, how much alcohol is in the wine, um, dissolved solids, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, and then things like tannins. Uh, tannins are phenolic compounds that um, can add bitterness or an astringency to certain wines. Um, in the best case scenario, they're they're quite pleasant. They add a you know a physical component to the wine, um, but in the worst case situations, they can be quite bitter, quite harsh. Um, but paired with the right foods, sometimes those harsh tasting wines actually work out really, really well. So we're going to walk you through a couple of the things that we think, um, starting right off the bat with acidity. Uh, acidity is your friend. A lot of North Americans uh, are very afraid of acidity, uh, especially when it comes to wine. Uh, North Americans, we tend to grow up with quite a sweet palate. Uh, we have a lot of things that are sweet, you know, look at ketchup and barbecue sauce. Uh, <laughs> you know, those things are, uh, you know, shockingly uh, sugary. And uh, then you look at sort of, you know, our breakfast cereals, and you look at the way that we like to drink our coffees. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's sort of no wonder uh, that the wines that, you know, on average, North Americans are drinking are often, you know, a, a little bit on the uh, richer side. And because of this, uh, you know, they don't tend to show off that acidity quite as much. But a lot of the wines that we include in this wine club uh, are quite high in acidity, quite bright, quite fresh. Um, they'll have quite a low pH. Uh, pH is a measurement for how acidic something is or how strong of an acid it is. Um, a lot of the wines that we're including in this wine club are somewhere between, you know, 3 and 3.5 pH. Um, and that's considered, you know, quite bright, quite fresh, uh, definitely higher uh, in acid than most of the things. So acidity, when it comes to food pairings, is incredibly useful. One is that it, um, you know, helps balance acidity in dishes. So if you were to take, 
you know, a sip of champagne, which is notoriously super high in acid, uh, and then have a bite of a, a lemon, that lemon would actually taste surprisingly sweet. It Acid tends to cancel itself out. So with other high acid dishes, um, you know, whether we're thinking about uh, things with tomato sauce, tomatoes are notoriously high in acid, uh, pickled things, um, you know, anything that has a, a ton of citrus, whether that be like ceviche, um, all these sort of things are going to really benefit from a wine that has at least the same amount of acidity as the dish. It'll help sort of balance everything. Those those high acid dishes will make the wine seem less acidic, and the high acid wine will make the the dish seem more bright, more more flavorful, more focused. The other thing that acidity tends to do is it cleanses our palate. So when we're pairing with high fat foods that tend to coat your palate, it's great to have something with a ton of acidity. Um, you know, you think of something like uh, pork belly and Riesling, uh, really awesome combination, or even like schnitzel and Riesling, uh, another classic combination where you have like a deep fried uh, cut of meat and you're pairing that with this, what, what seems on the surface like a, you know, light white wine, but that acidity is quite powerful. It cleanses your palate, makes everything seem really bright and fresh. So the number one thing that I would say when it comes to pairing is that make sure that your wine has an appropriate level of acidity. Uh, pretty much everything that we import is going to be definitely in that range. But if you look at a lot of the commercially available wines, um, again, things like Apothic, things like, uh, I don't know, Jlor. I'm making these things up. I haven't tried these things in a while. But uh, again, with most commercial wines, you're looking at softer acidity, wines that are designed to be uh, consumed on their own and not with food. Uh, again, if they're marketing towards North Americans who, who tend to drink more wine uh, on its own than they do uh, you know, having wine at the dinner table, um, it's definitely going to be those sort of softer acid styles, whether that be Shiraz or Malbec. Um, again, both grapes that are capable of making high acid wines, but for the North American market, and again, a handful of other markets, I'm just using North America because we happen to be here and most of our listeners are from here. Uh, those wines that are designed for that sort of North American or, or sort of international quote-unquote palate, um, they're going to tend to be lower acidity, and, and because of that, they're going to pair a little worse with food. Uh, there are examples of, you know, low-acid wines going well with food, but I think that they never really go as well with food as wines with higher acid. Uh, again, this is a completely, uh, you know, personal approach to wine tasting, so or wine pairing, so don't take everything you know, at face value. I'm sure you all have your different methodologies, uh, but trying to give you an idea of how, uh, how I like to think about it. The next thing you really want to think about is alcohol. Um, lower alcohol wines tend to pair way better with foods. Um, again, this is, is very much a personal statement, but in my experience, um, the higher the alcohol, the harder it is to, to find a dish that actually works really well with it. A lot of people will say like, oh man, but a big Shiraz um, or an Amarone with like something like ribs, like that's an amazing combination. And for me, I'm like, yeah, like that's a pretty good combination, but it's basically the only thing that those wines go with and they're not even pairing with those things the best. I think there are other examples of wines that are, uh, you know, maybe more balanced that would go even better with those dishes. Um, and so for me, lower alcohol is a lot easier. The other thing to consider is that alcohol and spice really play into one another. So the higher the alcohol, the more spicy something is going to feel. Uh, it basically sort of opens up the pores on your palate and then makes 
you know, the, the spicy dish that you're having tastes 10 times as spicy. So something like, um, you know, hot wings and, and 15% alcohol Shiraz, not going to be a good combination. You want to go really low alcohol. Uh, you know, again, uh, using Riesling as an example, because it often is quite low in alcohol, especially when it has a touch of residual sugar to it, you know, 9% alcohol, that's going to be way easier to do with spicy food. Um, you know, definitely one of my favorite combinations is wine and spicy food, but you really have to be careful about, uh, about that alcohol. Um, yeah, I think that lower alcohol wines are just the way to go. Uh, again, our wine club is almost exclusively low alcohol wine, so you're not going to have a ton of issues pairing these. Not only that, but I think that natural wine in general is just extraordinarily easy to pair. Um, I think that the flavor combinations, because they are, uh, you know, broader, uh, they're not as sort of like honed in on like three or four flavors. I think that they're, they're more forgiving when it comes to wine pairing. Uh, the next thing that we should talk about is definitely, um, uh, what should we talk about? We should talk about tannins. Tannins are super important as well. Uh, continuing on our discussion about spicy food, uh, tannins are the worst thing you can possibly do for spicy food. Um, again, I'm sure there will be people who disagree with me, but tannins essentially dry out your mouth. And that's the last thing you want when you're consuming something spicy. You want to be salivating. Uh, you want to be sort of like cleansing your palate. Uh, one of the things that does go well with spice, though, is sweetness. Um, so again, bringing me back to, to Riesling or something like uh, an off-dry muscat, um, even Gewürztraminer in certain cases, uh, if it's a sweeter style. I think that wines with a touch of sweetness go incredibly well with spicy, spicy food because it balances that heat. Uh, you know, you think of drinking something like a mango lassi, uh, having something like that with uh, like a hotter style curry, and it's you know, it's, it's absolute magic. Uh, this combination of, of sweet and spicy, they get along really, really well. And there's tons of different cultures that do that. And that's a really good way of looking at pairings as well, too, is looking at uh, flavor combinations that make sense um, sort of, you know, all around the globe, and then applying that to what you already know about the wine and what you already know about the dish. Um, tannins also work really well with fat. Uh, again, uh, tannins can be aggressive, they can be mouth drying, they can be bitter, they can be astringent, but like we were talking about earlier with acidity, uh, fat kind of puts this layer on your palate and prevents you from maybe experiencing the, the intensity of that drying effect. And so what happens is those tannins sort of function as this, this cleansing component in a wine pairing. So if you have a really fatty steak, something like Barolo makes a ton of sense. Uh, or if you have something like, uh, you know, like a really intense pasta, um, you know, bolognese, where it's like, you know, it's coating your lips with these, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of nice droplets of fat, um, you know, something like a Barolo or, or, or uh, Brunello di Montepulciano, like something like that, um, you know, those are great combinations because those tannins help balance the dish, help balance the, the fattiness. Both those uh, wines, though, are still going to be high in acidity. Again, that acidity kind of acts as the salt. It makes everything taste really bright, really clean, really focused. Um, so, uh, you know, the common denominator here is definitely going to be acidity. Uh, and then you want to think about the, the amount of body that a wine has. Um, a wine that's really rich and very textural and very intense, um, you know, they're not always going to go with these really light, delicate dishes. Um, there are examples of that working out really nicely, but, 
you know, you want to sort of have your intensity levels uh, roughly in the same point. You don't want the, you know, wine to overshadow the food or the food to overshadow the wine. So if you're having a really aromatic dish, um, again, going back to, uh, you know, different versions of curry that can be super aromatic, can be, um, you know, more gregarious flavor profiles uh, really uh, emanate from the dish. You want a wine that has that same sort of intensity level so it doesn't get lost. Uh, you know, otherwise, you, you know, you might as well be drinking a Budweiser, which I'm totally happy doing as well. But if you want your wine to really show its its best stuff, it's going to need the intensity to sort of keep up with the dish. So from a structural perspective, those are sort of the things that I'm looking for. And then when it comes to actually pairing, uh, there's sort of, you know, or like looking at your flavor profile, there's a couple different ways of doing it. One, you can compare and contrast. Uh, so you can, um, you know, if you have a lot of citrusy flavors, for instance, you can choose a really citrusy wine and try and, uh, compare that way where you're just trying to emphasize the things that are already there. Uh, again, because we brought up ceviche, um, you know, you can imagine having ceviche with something that's super lemony, like, uh, you know, talking about like a verdicchio or something like that, something that's going to be very citrus forward. And it's just going to bring out those flavors even more. Um, you know, you're having a Thai uh, dish with something with lime leaf. Uh, you know, you could easily pair that with a wine that has more of those sort of like limey characteristics, um, something like, uh, you know, uh, Australian semi or something like that, um, that's going to have that that limey sort of pithy quality to it. So you can pair that way. Uh, and same happens on the other side of the spectrum. Like say that you're doing like, you know, butter poached lobster and you want to really just make it a decadent, decadent pairing. You could choose something like a buttery Chardonnay or, you know, a, a Southern Rhone white that's going to be a little bit richer and sort of have that similar flavor profile. Um, the same thing goes with red wines as well. So for me, often I'll try and pick out a couple different flavors in the wine um, that are on the more savory side. Most wines have at least a little hint of savory, whether that be sort of a mushroomy characteristic, whether that be a, a more herbaceous characteristic. And I try and look for those notes and see whether or not I would like to experience that with that dish. Uh, if the flavors that you're seeing in the wine would go great in the dish, you know, it often makes sense. Um, for me, I'm really into the history of food and wine pairings and, and keeping those traditions alive and trying to preserve these like old school food cultures and, and some of these lost dishes. As you can tell by our write-ups, uh, often we'll be pulling out, uh, you know, super obscure dishes from the Czech Republic, for instance, or from, uh, you know, all over the world, whether that be Chile or whether... Uh, you know, via Australia, any, anywhere in the world, we're looking, you know, into the historic foods of those areas. And there's often this, uh, you know, saying that what grows together goes together. So if you're thinking about, you know, the Loire Valley in France, for instance, and you're looking at uh, something like Sancerre, you know, Sauvignon Blanc made in the most classic region of all time, uh, and you look at what's made around there, well, well Valence uh, cheese is made around there and it just so happens that it's like one of the ultimate pairings so you know often I look to what was traditionally drank with this style of wine uh, and then I can use that as a pairing 
Um, ultimately, there are no rules, though. Like, you know, it's not going to be like the flavor police show up at your door and, and uh, get mad at you for pairing red wine and oysters, even though it's, a, you know, a ghastly combination as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but ultimately, it's, it's just fun to play around with these things. Um, for me, again, that's why we write the pairings. Uh, is, is a, it's a good excuse to... Um, you know, try out new flavor combinations and see what works. And, and uh, for us, you know, for the longest time, I hated wine and food pairings. I never thought that wine actually enhanced food. I never thought that food enhanced wine. Uh, and then one time uh, at Kensington Wine Bar, uh, actually, and this is probably almost 10 years ago, um, I had uh, this like biscotti that was with um, uh, a quince jam that they had made. Uh, and had that alongside of uh, Saturn, which is the sweet wine from Clos de Soleil, or at least it was 10 years ago. I have no idea if they still make that wine. And that pairing was just completely mind-bending to me. And, you know, since then, you know, I've really sort of, you know, been on the hunt for the ultimate wine pairings. Um, often we'll go up to Yarrow in Edmonton just as an excuse to fool around with wine pairings. Um, you know, we'll bring a dozen bottles of wine and, and, you know, Ben will cook 22 dishes as he does. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll test out crazy combinations and see what works. And often we're completely shocked with, you know, some of the, some of the things that work well together. So I, I don't think that we've exhausted all the possibilities. Um, we haven't figured out all the rules, all the best ways of doing things. So, um, you know, I'd say that experiment with it, but at least I've given you a little bit of a background about how our brain works when we're trying to come up with these pairings. Uh, before we go on too much of a tangent, I should get to the wines for this month. Uh, you've been patiently listening now for, uh, you know, 17 minutes. Uh, and so we might as well get into it. Uh, we'll talk a little more briefly about the wines today, just because we did have that big rant. Um, but let's dive in. So first up this month is Nesterak Forks and Knives. Uh, basically, we sort of looked through what we've included over the last couple months and really wanted to uh, include a couple new regions, new grape varieties, new, um, I don't know, just stuff from places that we haven't included wine from in a, in a little while. Um, and for us, the Czech Republic is, is a super, super cool place to be making wine right now. Uh, Milan Nestrak, the, uh, the young man who's making these wines, like he's, I think he's barely over 30 at this point, uh, although he did just have a baby, which is very exciting, and congrats to, uh, to Milan for, uh, you know, this next little phase of his life. He's obviously very excited based on his Instagram posts, and so everybody should give him a shout-out and, you know, go comment and wish him luck. Um, so he's uh, especially, you know, it's harvest time right now, so it's, uh, you know, having a baby right before harvest time, always a good thing. Uh, <laughs> anyways, he's in southern, uh, the southern part of the Czech Republic in Moravia. Um, this area is sort of like rolling hills. Uh, the soils here are mostly uh, windblown soils. Uh, so Los uh, is what we'd call those windblown soils, quite silty. Um, there's a little bit of clay, maybe a little bit of limestone here and there, some rocky soils here and there, but mostly we're talking about Los and, and, and some loamy soils. Um, Milan has been making wine for quite a period of time. Uh, he took over, uh, the estate from his father, essentially, who, um, was sort of the, the, 
you know, the sort of comeback generation when it comes to winemaking in the Czech Republic. A lot of people don't realize that winemaking was state-controlled during communism in the Czech Republic. So all these uh, people who had family farms and had been making wine for generations, uh, you know, century upon century, um, they were all of a sudden not allowed making their own wine uh, for commercial, uh, you know, for, for at least not to sell to other people. They were able to make a little bit of wine for themselves, but essentially they they lost their history. They lost their traditions of making wine. And so uh, when Milan's father uh, was able to get his vineyards back and start producing wine again, it was really exciting. It's one of the first producers to convert to organics um, after sort of the fall of communism. Uh, so it was a big deal. Uh, you know, at that point, people were definitely... Well, even now, people are, are struggling to a greater or lesser degree um, trying to make their wineries viable and more appealing to the international markets. Uh, you know, there's a reason why there's not a ton of uh, Czech wines on the shelf. Um, you know, they've, they've been stunted for all, all that period of time when they weren't really interested in exporting. They weren't interested in quality even for that matter. They were just like, let's just make wine. Uh, and so now it's it's taken some time for them to get onto the international market, and we're really excited to get to represent them. Um, we've been working with these wines for almost five years now. Uh, we took a brief hiatus for, for the last year or so, just because, honestly, it's still very hard selling wine from the Czech Republic in Alberta. Um, you know, there's in most stores, there's that little, like, tiny international section uh, where they'll try and just, you know, put everything. They'll put Greece, they'll put Hungary, they'll put you know, Czech Republic, Romania, all those things will end up in that one little section. But honestly, there's not a ton of room for these wines. And so uh, it was really challenging for us, but we decided that there was no way that we can give up on a producer that we that we love as much as we do. Uh, and so, uh, you know, despite what our, you know, our, our previous financial record uh, said, we decided that we were going to import these wines again anyways. And luckily this time, it finally seems to be that the market is, is ready for drinking more wines from elsewhere in the world because they're flying off the shelves and we're really excited about that. We couldn't be happier. Um, so this wine uh, is called Forks and Knives because it's their gastronomic wine. Uh, it's their wine that's designed to be paired with food. Uh, he makes three different versions of Forks and Knives, a rosé, uh, a white that's kind of a little bit white, a little bit orange, and then this red. Um, at 10% alcohol, you can see why it's going to be such a great pairing for so many different foods. Uh, that low alcohol, high acidity, brightness, freshness, but also a lot of the earthy components in this wine. This wine is definitely base-driven, despite the fact that it's really light. Um, you know, the first thing that I get off the nose is, is some of those herbal characteristics. Um, you know, I was talking about black currant leaf in the, in the write-up, potting soil, uh, some mushroomy characteristics, but that's backed up by all this sort of dark fruit. Uh, it's made from Pinot Noir, Blau Frankish, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Cabernet Franc. And the last three of those grape varieties tend to be black fruit dominant, um, Meaning that instead of, you know, red cherry and raspberry and strawberry, they're more on the black fruit spectrum, more blueberry, blackberry, plum, uh, things in that sort of range. And so even though this wine is light, it tends to have some dark fruit flavors, which I think make it, again, an incredible pairing for a lot of dishes that, uh, you know, sort of struggle for the right flavor combination. Um, it's also uh, a little bit more on the on the 
uh, unstable side. He's not using any sulfur in this. So I'd say that after you've opened it, uh, you know, you want to kind of drink it within a day. Um, you know, this vintage is a lot more stable than the last vintage we had. The last vintage we had, I'd say that you'd want to drink it over the course of an hour or two. Uh, this one, you know, I've had it open for, for more than eight hours and it was still tasting awesome. That being said, you know, are you really going to want to cellar this for a long period of time? Are you really want to, uh, do you really want to drink it over the course of like two to three days? Probably not. The flavors are going to fall apart a little bit. It might get a little bit mousy. Um, again, it's nothing to worry about necessarily, but definitely, you know, drink it a little bit chilled uh, and drink it over the course of sort of a day, whether that means that uh, on a Saturday you have a glass of wine with lunch, then a couple more with dinner, uh, or whether you sort of just like crush it with a charcuterie board before you get into your meal. Uh, it's definitely a wine that's designed uh, to be drunk, uh, you know, fresh and fast. I think that, uh, that the second you taste it, you'll want to do that anyways. <laughs> it is hard not to polish off a bottle of this uh, in, a, in a second or two. Um, again, I, I really think that this is a super fun wine. Obviously, my, my pairings are uh, in the write-up, so definitely check those out. But uh, yeah, there, there's a good, uh, good reference to meatloaf uh, in there. So <laughs> definitely worth checking out. Uh, the next wine that we have in today's club is going to be a way fuller-bodied red. Uh, this is Camara's Shadow Play Red. Um, Camara, located uh, near Thessaloniki in Greece, um, they're uh, some of the coolest people that I've ever met. Uh, really thoughtful, very intense, very uh, exuberant, um, just really great human beings. Uh, Dimitrios uh, farms and runs the winery with his family, and there are a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> his daughter, uh, Stravula, is sort of the main, you know, his sort of like right-hand man to, to use the uh, colloquialism. Um, uh, she is apparently running the vineyards now, uh, so focusing mostly on the farming, while Demetrios focuses mostly in the winery, although they all do everything. Uh, you know, I've seen his, his wife and his sons uh, both working in, you know, the vineyards and harvesting wild herbs to spray their, uh, spray their vineyards with. Um, they're doing everything. And this is such a beautiful example of uh, what this sort of permaculture ideology is. They're really, I don't know, they, they really embody this idea of, you know, like they, they grew up in, uh, as far as I know, um, Demetrios was living in Thessaloniki beforehand and uh, ultimately decided, hey, like I really want to bring up my kids in next to nature uh, with this more sort of uh, agrarian lifestyle. Um, and I think that's, you know, sort of an, a noble pursuit and he seems to have embraced it fully. Uh, the pictures of him, again, look extraordinarily happy all the time. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he's so in tune with nature. Uh, so this is made from a traditional grape variety uh, called Xenomavro. Uh, Xenomavro is, is often referred to as the Barolo uh, of Greece. Uh, it has a lot of similarities in the sense that it's often quite high in tannin. Uh, it's often quite intense. It's really age-worthy. Uh, the example that we have in today's wine club is the oldest wine that we've had in a, for a while, I'm pretty sure, 2017. Um, I believe it's 2017, maybe 2018, but I'm pretty sure it's 2017. 
Um, but either way, so this grape variety tends to yield these really perfumed wines um, with this really great combination of black and red fruit, uh, this really gorgeous uh, sort of dried flowers, but also fresh flowers. Um, it's a very intense wine, um, you know, very meaty, very lots of muscle there, uh, which, again, as we talked about earlier, makes it maybe a little trickier to pair with food. You're going to want to use uh, you know, fuller body dishes, whether that be, you know, something meaty, something on the, the red, uh, the red meat end of the spectrum, whether that be lamb or burgers or something in that sort of vein, uh, all definitely classic. I, I could see some, some really good kebabs going with this, um, you know, spiced lamb with like cumin, throw that over the coals, uh, get it nice and crispy on the outside. That's, you know, definitely something I'd be super excited about as a, as a pairing with this. Um, they don't have a ton of it planted on their farm. Uh, it's challenging to grow, uh, and they're, you know, their vineyards are not massive. So the production is super small, but we're really lucky to have gotten enough of it to, uh, share with the wine club this year. We ordered this wine, oh goodness, I don't even know, like eight months ago, uh, knowing that it was going into the wine club. And so we're super thrilled that it's finally here. If you like this wine, it's definitely worth checking out their other wines. We got the new vintage of um, uh, Nimbus Albus, uh, which is uh, sort of their bright, fresh, but really intensely flavored uh, white. Uh, we used it in wine club about this time last year, and everybody went crazy for it. Uh, a lot of people said that it was their favorite wine of the year, uh, which is quite the quite the claim. I am also in the same boat. I just think that wine is so confounding. It's so citrusy, but so intense. Uh, definitely almost like a full-bodied white, yet at the same time so bright, um, so tangy. So that's definitely worth tracking down. Uh, it's also worth tracking down their Petnat. If you like sparkling wines, it's a little rosé Petnat. Um, it's, uh, it's just way too much fun to drink. I think it's one of the better examples on the market and, you know, doesn't break the bank. I think it's somewhere around 40 bucks, you know, not inexpensive, but I think for the quality level and how small production it is, it's, uh, it's amazing. And then the last thing we get from them is uh, Retsina. So it's actually wine infused with pine resin. And uh, Demetrios, unlike most of his compatriots, actually goes and harvests uh, his own pine resin uh, without killing the trees. What they do for commercial production of Retsina is they cut down the trees, uh, they put it in this vat with a bunch of chemicals that extracts all of the, uh, all of the resin, and then they use that to infuse the wine. It definitely leaves a chemically flavor in the wine, and it's the reason why most people think that Retsina is quite uh, horrendous versus his version of Retsina. It smells like a, a fresh garden um, as well as the mountains, and it's it's absolutely beautiful. So it's worth seeking out, and is it extraordinarily inexpensive? Um, you're looking at uh, you know well under $20 for a 500-ml bottle. Uh, he also recommends having it with uh, with tonic, which I really like. If you like low alcohol cocktails, uh, Retsina and tonic, again, absolutely mind bending combination. Uh, it's kind of like gin and tonic, just uh, just a little lighter, a little lower on the alcohol, which is again something I could always use. So the last wine that we have today uh, is from the Brand Bros. Uh, this is a, a hilarious project. Um, I love these guys so much. Um, uh, Daniel and uh, Jonas, they're super young. 
Uh, they're younger than I am, which is, you know, in the wine industry, it's uh, it's a lot of sort of sort of old curmudgeonly men. So it's always nice to meet some young guys uh, that just want to farm and and do everything as old school as humanly possible. When I first met them, it was uh, it was five years ago uh, in Germany, and we got the opportunity to taste you know dozens and dozens of different wines. And I thought that their wines were a standout. Uh, we had a meeting with them and uh, I was like, I really want to import these. But at that time, we had absolutely no cash flow. Uh, we were really bad at uh, making sure that there was money in the bank. Uh, and so ultimately, we weren't actually able to order any wine from them. And it was super tragic. And, uh, you know, we met up with them again a couple years later in L.A. at a wine show there. And I was like, I still really want to work with your wines. We ended up at some crazy party with them. Uh, uh, in the industrial area, in some sort of weird storage locks, uh, loft space. I don't know. It was a very weird evening. Lots of drinking was done. We drank all the Riesling in the world, I'm pretty sure. Um, but anyways, I just thought these guys were the coolest. And then we found out that Metrovino was going to be bringing them in. And we're like, cool, this is a really great opportunity to get to drink them. Uh, and so Metrovino was working with just a couple of their wines, uh, this one included, actually. And um, they got to a point where they're like, hey, like they make, you know, a dozen other wines that, you know, we just don't have room for in our store. Uh, would you want to bring in those dozen other wines and then we can continue working with the wines that we do have space for in the shop? Um, I thought it was a great idea and it's given us a, a great opportunity to work together with the guys from Metro as well as actually getting to represent the brand bros. So it's, uh, it's such a treat. Um, they're located in the Pfalz. Uh, Pfalz is one of the warmer regions in Germany, still famous for making, uh, for making white wines, uh, you know, traditionally from Riesling as far as the high quality stuff goes, but there's a dozen or so other grape varieties that are growing in this region that are absolutely killer. Uh, in this case, uh, the Wildersatz, this is a blend of quite a few different grape varieties. Uh, it's Pinot Blanc, Sylvaner, Chardonnay, Müller-Turgau, Pinot Gris, Riesling, and Kerner. Uh, that is a uh, smorgasbord of uh, <laughs> flavors, essentially. Um, some of the wine is going to be skin-fermented, so made as an orange wine, and some of it is going to be made uh, in a more traditional white wine uh, style where you just directly press the, uh, the grapes. Um, this combination of white and orange is perfect because you end up with something that's really light. Again, this is 10.5% alcohol, so really easy to pair with things. Um, incredibly bright, incredibly fresh. And just a style that I, I really, really enjoy. Um, the last time I had this wine was actually at Park um, by Sidewalk Citizen here in Calgary. Uh, you know, sitting on the patio, sunshine rolling in, kind of a cool evening. Uh, and it's just that perfect sort of textural white wine that sort of spans the seasons, goes really well both in, uh, you know, summer and fall. Um, you know, now that we're in this sort of nice extended fall, it's it's nice to, you know, keep getting to drink white wines, but something with a little more, you know, sort of autumnal kick to it. Um, 
This wine, from a flavor perspective, super lemony. Um, I really like all the sort of citrus characteristics in this wine. Uh, it's got this lemon balm sort of herbaceousness to it. Uh, you get some of the spice from, from Pinot Gris, uh, some of the stone fruity characteristics from, from Riesling, uh, some of the softness from Pinot Blanc and Chardonnay, some of the minerality uh, you'd expect off of Sylvaner and Muller Turgau, that kind of like dusty kind of smoky quality, uh, but really it's got everything. This is kind of like, uh, like everything about it is really fun for me. Uh, I think this is going to be a huge crowd fl- uh, favorite. I wouldn't be surprised if this ends up as one of the new favorites uh, of all time. Actually, same thing with the uh, the Camara Shadow Play. I think people are going to be really, really impressed with that wine. Um, I don't know. It's so hard to say. Like all the wines of this month's wine club are so good. I'm like, well, now I'm thinking about uh, about Nesterak and how much I want to drink that. So it's, I don't know. I don't know what's going to be everybody's favorite. I think that we'll have to do a poll again in the near future here, uh, or maybe we'll have a monthly poll and see what everybody's favorite is. Then we can we can kind of nail it a little bit better. Um, you know, definitely send us uh, send us your suggestions. Uh, I really like the suggestion of doing the. Um, uh, the wine pairings and how we come up with wine pairings. So if you send us an email, we'll definitely answer your questions uh, to the best of our ability. Uh, and uh, we, we love stuff like that. I won't ramble on too much longer. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to listen and to taste. And if you have any questions, you can reach me at Eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. You can send us a message on Instagram or at juiceimports. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for uh, for hanging out with us. Cheers.